This is Dario Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 89, how one individual goes from making $8 an hour to multi-millionaire in just a few short years. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7-Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast you're listening to the before the millions podcast whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye hey what's up what's going on btm tribe we're back for another installment and Guys, I'm excited for another brand new week in this brand new year, and there's so much I want to discuss with you guys. There's so much going on, and I feel like I can just go for an hour on this intro, but I'll try to make it short. (laughs) So I've been hosting this challenge, and in this challenge, it's called the BTM 5K Challenge, by the way. It's how to make 5K in the next 30 days. But in this challenge, there's a task where I have the challengers find a power agent. So I'm participating in the challenge and I'm actually doing the challenge alongside with all the challengers. You guys can check this out over at beforethemillions.com slash 5k. So let me just fast forward to why I'm telling you the story. One of the agents that I'm working with sent over a few properties for me to look at. And when she sent over these properties, she had her notes on the side and told me like kind of why she thinks I would be interested in these properties. And a lot of her notes were more so estimates of what these properties would be worth after a rehab. Now, now these estimates are largely based on how this agent and how the agents in this person's office are viewing the market and what could possibly happen in the market within the next year or two and five years and 10 years. And they're seeing how much development is going on and how much prices are shooting up in this particular market. So her numbers are reflecting this. So she's telling me that these are good deals. These are going to be outrageously profitable deals for you if you go ahead and lock these properties in. Now, I'm not saying that she's right or wrong as far as these being good deals, but her premise is eerily similar to the premise that lots of realtors and investors had just about 12 years ago. So for those of us who are investors and we just started investing in this decade, we can't really speak on what to do in a downturn, what to do in a recession. Like, I mean, we can, and I'm sure I will every once in a while, but don't take my opinion as fact or anywhere close to fact. I have no idea, right? But I have successfully interviewed over 100 entrepreneurs and millionaires from all over the world who invest in real estate, most of which have been investing since before the crash, including today's guest, Mr. Daniel Amaduri. 
Now, this is some of what we discussed on today's podcast episode, but I hear the opinions of these individuals over and over again and what happened during the crash and what they would do different and and if only they can take things back and so on and so forth. And then I hear the stories of the individuals who had fun during the crash, who bought up everything during the crash, who are making major profits and so on and so forth. And I study the markets and I study the trends and I understand that everything is done based off emotion. And one of my favorite movies is The Big Short. If you haven't heard of that movie, um, it kind of just depicts exactly what I'm talking about now, like the point up until the 08 crash and then slightly after the crash. So if if you're interested on how and why the real estate bubble happened, go ahead and check out that movie and and you'll have a whole lot of clarity as to what was going on during that time. For those of you who are not going to go back and watch the movie, let me give you just one of the major reasons why we had the 2008 crash. Going back to this realtor who sent me a list of deals that could possibly be super profitable. Back in 05, 06, 07, real estate prices were going up at a enormous rate. They were going up so fast in some pockets of the market to where an agent or an investor would know that if they bought a property this month for $100,000, in just a few short months, they'd be able to sell that property on the open market for $140,000. And a lot of people would do exactly that. Investors, quote unquote, which I mean, we would call them speculators at this point, but investors would buy property at market value. So if a property is worth $100,000, they would buy it for $100,000 with the intent of selling it a few weeks or a few months later for a profit because they know that the market is going up at drastic rates. These people are not investors. These people are speculators. These people are playing a guessing game with the market. Now, you may say, no, they're not. I mean, they're looking at the market. Market trends are up and you know they know that if they buy now, that in a few months, this is what's going to happen. Actual investors don't take that much risk. Warren Buffett's number one rule is what? Don't lose any money ever. Rule number two, refer to rule number one. These people, however, believed that they could predict the market. This is when anybody and everybody were investors. These people kept doing that and profiting and making a killing until one day there was no more and it all came crashing down. And many of these people, they had these properties that they had bought at market value, not at a discount. They bought at market value. And get this, some of them would overpay with the confidence that they're investing in an ever-expanding market and they're going to make their money back plus more, plus extra in no time. So they would literally overpay, overbid for properties and think that they're being investors. They're being savvy investors. And when the market took a hit by 30, 40, and 50%, they had these these properties in their inventory and there was nothing that they could do about it. So although we may be newer investors who haven't experienced the, the 07, 08 crash, we have the expertise of those that withstood the crash. And we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from their successes. In this 30-day challenge that I'm running, I show you exactly how to avoid this pitfall. Based off all of the knowledge and resources that I've gathered, I show you exactly how to avoid this pitfall and how to make sure that you are an investor and not a speculator. In fact, in the tip of the week, I'm going to share with you exactly what you need to do. And it's going to be so simple. You're going to be like, oh, I'm going to share with you exactly what you need to do, but to almost guarantee that if and when you are faced with a recession as an investor, that you're on solid footing. 
right after that, guys, we are going to um, actually cover a real life case study, cover Daniel's story and what he did during the crash and how he messed up and how he got himself out of that situation. And it's going to be fascinating, guys. We're going to talk about how now Daniel travels five star everywhere he goes and how he spends 50K a year on wine, just wine alone. We're going to talk about the difference between retirement and financial independence and how we must shift our mindset from a retirement point of view to a financial independence point of view as quickly as possible. We're going to talk about the difference between Robert Kiyosaki and his methods and then Dave Ramsey and his methods. And maybe there's some alignment there and maybe there's some truth to both sides that we need to be able to use in our own lives. We're going to talk about why it actually may be better to pay off your primary home. Hmm. Interesting. So before all of this, before we talk to Daniel, let's go ahead and get to the tip of the week. DeRay's Tip of the Week. If you listen to any real estate related podcast for any good amount of time, you will eventually hear the phrase, I make money on the buy. Or if you buy right, you're an investor. What do these people mean when they say, I make money when I buy real estate? Like that? Like, did that, when you first heard that, did that sound a little weird to you? I mean, I know it sounded weird to me. Like, I was just like, you make the money when you buy. But as I became an investor and I started learning what people were doing in the industry that were so, so wrong, I started learning what people were doing in the industry that were right. I was just like, well, I think a lot of people don't understand that statement because as simple as it is, it's so profound. And if more and more people lived by that mantra, in 2006, seven, and eight, they wouldn't have maybe lost everything. Maybe they would have been able to salvage a lot of what they lost. Maybe they would have been like some of the other investors and actually made some money. So what does it mean to make money on the buy? So let me start with saying this. Speculators, similar to the situation I gave you guys about the realtor that I was working with, similar to the situation that I gave you guys about the realtor who is giving me ARVs, or market values that she's predicting based on where the market is going, not based on where the market is today. So let me, I don't want to confuse you guys. So let me make it as simple as possible for for those of you that are a little bit greener. An investor, a true investor will buy a property at a discount, meaning that based on today's market conditions, today's market value, today's property worth, I will have purchased this property at a good deal, at a discount, at a good value, as opposed to how much it's actually worth. Or would it be a surprise to you to hear that most investors don't do that? Because especially now more than ever, appreciation is so prominent. We've been on an upward trajectory for over 10 years. So often when you see people that have the title investor, what they're doing is they're buying property. So let's say they're buying a $100,000 property that's worth $100,000. They're buying that property for $100,000. And they can call themselves gurus and they can call themselves investors and they can have the data to back it up saying that the market is going to go up and they could actually even make a killing. But this does not make them investors. This makes them consumers who are gamblers, who are literally playing the lottery. An investor who buys right, an investor who makes money on the buy has the mindset that no matter what happens in the market, I have made money. Why can they say that? Because if you make money on the buy as an investor, so you buy that $100,000 property, but you don't accept to buy that property unless you can get that property at $70,000 at a 30% discount. So that means today, tomorrow, if you sell that property, you can make $30,000 instantly. 
That's how much baked in equity you already have. So therefore, you're not banking on this future appreciation. That's not what you're setting your laurels on. You've done your homework, you've done your research, and you know that the purchase price that you've paid for this property today is already a good deal. You've already won, no matter what happens in the future. And if you do get that market upturn, that's just icing on the cake. And if there's a downturn, well, you've already baked in some of that volatility. So you're not in a risky position, whereas that speculator is in a very, very risky position. And that's what happened in the crash. A lot of people were over leveraged because if you're in a downturn and the worth of your property goes down by 30, 40, 50 percent and the loan on your property exceeds the worth of that property, first off, you can't sell it or you can sell it, but you have to sell it at a major discount to actual investors who are going to be happy to take that property from you. But what those actual investors are doing with their properties, because they already bought it at a discount, is they're just waiting out the storm. They don't care that the, their, their property value just dropped 30, 40, 50 percent, especially because they bought it at a discount and therefore their leverage, their terms, their rates also reflect that. So if you're paying $1,000 in a mortgage and they're paying $700 in a mortgage and rents in that area have dropped to $1,000, the investor is still making money and they can withstand the storm. So if their property drops in value from 2007 to 2009, from $100,000 to $70,000, they're not really just worried like, oh my goodness, I have to sell because I have a $100,000 loan on this property. They're like, oh, interesting. I'm making money on this property every single day from the tenants who pay me $1,000 a month and I only have to pay it $700 a month in mortgage. And then, then after 2009, when things start going back up, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, rents are going up. So they're getting paid, what, 13, 14, $1,500 and they're only paying $700 in the mortgage and now appreciation is going up. And that property that went down to 70 grand is back up to what it was at 100 grand. And then 2012 and 13 and 14 start hitting. And now that property is going up to 125, 150, 175, 200. That's because this investor made money when they purchased. This investor made money on the buy. So go forward, buy right, finance right, and then manage right. I got that last little portion from Jake and Gino. Now, this is exactly what I am teaching my challengers in the BTM 5K challenge to do as they make offers, because we're making offers, guys. And if you're, you guys are in 2019 and you're deciding that this is your year to invest in real estate and get started, and you're doing this on your own, first off, good luck to you. Second off, I want to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward and you're making offers because my challengers, that's what they're doing. That's the number one indicator that they're using right now to understand whether or not they're making progress. And that's what you should be using as well. If you want to participate in this challenge and you want me to help you along your way as you start this journey and possibly put 5K in your pocket in the next 30 days, this is a free challenge and I'm assisting you all along the way. Go ahead and head over to beforethemillions.com slash 5K. Let's get started on this challenge. Let's put 5, 10, 15K in your pocket in the next 30, 60, or 90 days by buying right, by making money on the buy and being true investors and not speculators. Now, let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. First and foremost, let me introduce you guys to our guest, Daniel Amaduri. Daniel, how's it going today? It's going great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm definitely super excited. I'm excited to get into your story. Let's take it back for the listeners, Daniel. I kind of want to talk about the inception and how all of this came to be. And we can start from anywhere you want. Just kind of take us back to your younger, earlier formative years and what you were up to and kind of what, what kind of turned your mind to, to like this creating this lifestyle that you now have? So I don't know why I had a fascination with money or entrepreneurship because there was no entrepreneurship in my family and there wasn't, money really wasn't discussed. 
But ever since I was a little boy, I was always fascinated and interested in it. And um, never the materialism, never wanted a yacht or a mega mansion or anything like that. Never was a car guy. I don't even know anything about, you know, what I drive or anything outside that it takes 87. I just always had a fascination with it. And I, and I have stories where my mom, you know, I'd get in trouble at school because I was selling pencils or something or if somebody gave us something like my uncle worked for Nabisco, brought us a bunch of cookies. I threw them all in a red wagon and went down the street and started going door to door and selling cookies. And, um, and inevitably, I came across a book written by Robert Kiyosaki at 13 years old. It was called Want to Be Rich and Happy, Don't Go to School. And of course, a 13-year-old boy seen anything about being rich and not going to school. It was like, wow, this is the book for me. So I read that book, and uh, Robert Kiyosaki, who ultimately would go on to uh, write Rich Dad, Poor Dad and become the best personal finance uh, author ever, he had a huge influence on my life in his books. Now, I've actually never spoken to him. I will be speaking to him for my first time in November, but to this day, I, I do this interview, I've never met him, but huge influence on my life and really helped shape the skepticism I had towards conventional thinking into an alternative, right? So it's not enough to just reject what everybody else is going to do, which is go get a job, try to retire in 40 years and all this stuff. Because as a boy, I'm like, well, okay, I don't want to do that, but where do you go? And then Kiyosaki was teaching about why don't you, you know, become financially independent, try to buy things that make you money, multiple things that make you money and, you know, buy assets, that cash flowing. I was just obsessed with this stuff from 13 to 18, all throughout high school, getting D's, you know, literally having to go to like night school to, to, to redo an English class, barely graduating high school and because I was spending four to five hours at Barnes and Noble. Uh, sometimes I'd show up to school at like 11 o'clock in the morning because I had swung by Barnes and Nobles and I just couldn't put a personal finance book by Tony Robbins. So just always fascinated with this stuff. And it ultimately leads to me buying my first rental property at 18. And I don't know if you want me to go on, but uh, so that's, I bought my first rental property at 18 years old, bought my first business actually at 16. I've just always been fascinated with this, um, with making money. I love that. And I think about your progression and I started way later than you. And I think about some of the listeners who are even starting way later than now. And there was always this angst that there's something else out there. There's another world out there. I, I don't know where I saw this. I don't know what it is, but I know that there's, there's something else out there and people are living a different type of life. And I always knew that somehow, some way, even like the people around me, like somehow, some way I was going to be what I called a success, what I envisioned myself as a success, whatever that means to me. Right. And once I graduated from college and I kind of went down the track that was socially deemed to be successful, mm -hmm. I wasn't happy. I didn't feel successful. And I looked at my bank account and I was just like, man, this is not going to work out. <laughs> this trajectory, like even in my industry, like, and we, we, we were getting raises like far beyond industry norm. Like, I mean, at, typical raises are 46% a year. Whereas for a big four accountant, like you're, you're looking at nine to 13% a year. So I was using those projections and even on the high end of 13 or 15%, I was just like, there is no way to ever become wealthy. And <laughs> it hit me like a ton of bricks. And again, going, going back to your story, it seems like, you know, at 13, you started having some of these thoughts. You started having some of these, some of these, some, some of the, this angst. And you were just like, man, like, I don't, I don't want to go down this typical path. This is not for me. Let me figure something else out. Again, with no role models in your life, as far as being entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And you, you start at 16. 
what gave you the confidence to think that this, I mean, what, I mean, I see, I know that you're reading these books, but the fact that there's not, not a single person in your, in your direct vicinity to just kind of be like, Hey, Daniel, this is how you're supposed to do it. Or yes, you can do this. Like what gave you that initial drive or first step to just be like, let me go ahead and go through with this. Let me start this. You know, it's definitely a strong support from uh, my father. Uh, my parents were divorced. I have two supporting parents, but I was living with my dad. And though he wasn't um, into entrepreneurship uh, or anything, he just he was he was huge on supporting whatever we wanted to do. And I'll give you a great example. Uh, when I was twelve, I wanted to be a SeaWorld trainer. So he took it to the next level. Like then that year, we uh, we drove to Vancouver, Canada, twenty-two hour drive in a Buick Regal just him and I, and we went and saw orcas in the wild uh, in British Columbia. My dad was just all about going all in. And uh, even then, that was even when we were in this stuff. So when I was 16 years old and I had the opportunity to buy 25% of a business, I told him and it was just like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And so he helped me. It was actually had to be in his name because I was a minor. So my dad had a lot to do with just uh, being able to support me when I didn't want to go to college. Luckily, I didn't have to face a parental fight, which a lot of people would have to do because there's certainly pressure to go to college amongst people. And um, my dad was like, okay, well, what, what are you going to do? And it was like, just, I'm like, well, I'm going to buy houses. And so he was all in on, on you know, okay, what, what can I do? You know, he was over there, you know, helping me clean that, clean my first rental property and, you know, over there, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, helping me paint it to get it ready for a, a rental. He knew nothing about this stuff, but he was just there to support me. And I would say what put me over the edge to definitely go this route was when I was 16 years old, I, I signed up for a home at class, which was basically like cooking and sewing. There was 28 girls and I was one of only two boys. So this was an easy one for me, even though I wasn't a master in math, I got those numbers. And I'll never forget the, the counselor coming in to teach us about uh, being an adult and post high school. And she had this chart and it was in the mid nineties. So the data was probably from the late eighties or early nineties. And she was like, high school graduates make $25,000 a year on average and college graduates make $35,000 a year on average. And I'll never forget that day. That was such a big day for me because I, that was the day I was like, no way am I going to college. No way. And that, and you think about it, I'm a millennial in the late nineties in high school, man, the pressure to go to college on all of us was, was huge. Like it was real. It was religion. It was like leaving the church if you didn't go to college. Yeah. And, and I, I'll never forget that. I saw that chart and she was trying to make a selling point that look how you can make all this extra money and it compounds over 30 years. And I was like, first of all, Getting rich in 30 years sounds like a crazy idea. That's way too long. And secondly, I was like, I'm not going to make that much more if I go to college. I'm like, so I might as well just get started. And now for my wife and her parents, it was more like religion to go to college. So I actually lied and said I was going to college for about a year. I told my wife that that was my, my high school sweetheart at that time, my girlfriend, who's now my wife. I actually told her that I was, I was going to college and I would leave the house and, you know, go over to the... Uh, West Covina, Barnes and Noble. And I'd sit there for five, six hours and I'd come back and everybody would ask me how school was. And of course I had no idea what college was. Uh, and eventually I got caught and I had to fess up that, look, I, I haven't been going to college this whole time. Oh, wow. What were you actually doing at that Barnes and Noble? Because I'm just imagining you like actually building your business, but what were you doing? So I was learning. I just thoroughly enjoyed um, reading every real estate book I could. I was uh, reading all the personal finance and develop books. I would literally go back and forth between personal, personal help growth books like Tony Robbins 
and then back jumped over to the personal finance section. And I actually never stopped doing that. Always enjoyed it. And then I would go to like any conference that was free, you know, if Carlton Sheets or something was in town, I'd jump over to those real estate conferences. And, you know, I try to go on, uh, this was before Craigslist really, so really in the newspaper ads and look for real estate deals. And I'd love talking to realtors or uh, that type of thing. But it actually uh, it reminds me of something I don't think I've ever shared. But uh, I remember when we, when we declared financial independence, now this fast forwards to like 2012, 2013, I'll never forget going into Barnes and Nobles and almost being somewhat depressed for like a few months because these books were no longer applicable. Like I could read a Dave Ramsey book or a Robert Kiyosaki, but I was like, it, it, I did it. I had done it. And, and there was some, it was, it's in a weird way. I know this probably jumps to the last part of our interview, but um, in a weird way, I'll never forget that uh, for months, I, I just lost the drive to go to Barnes and Nobles. And, to the, and I haven't been there probably in uh, two years now. Oh, wow. That is definitely interesting. And even the progression of that, like, let's kind of continue where we are really quick, because I think it's important to kind of look at the unfolding of your investment journey, your entrepreneurial journey. And you started with one rental, one single family rental, it sounds like. Now, the fact that you, and I think you got a head start because you kind of cheated uh, in the sense that you didn't go to college. So you have whatever that tuition is, 10, 20, 30, 40K, you've saved that. So you're already ahead of the curve and you actually still got a whole lot of learning done in that same span, that same time span. So let, let's say you, you went to college, but it was a college that you created. Now that you have this information, now that you have this learning and you have your, you have your first rental, what's kind of going through your head? What's next for you? What do you, I mean, what's the goal? Are you trying to build up a, a portfolio of rentals? Are you trying to start a business? Like, what do you think? at the time. So I'm trying to, to do what Rich Dad Poor Dad said you could do in the book. And I'm trying to build up passive income to pay for my lifestyle. And I knew I had to do with rental property. And I ended up buying my second property at 19 with creative financing from some stuff that I learned at the Carlton Sheets uh, program. And then it just never stopped. It kept buying, which was very successful, right? So you graduate high school in 99, 2000, I'm buying houses and the real estate bubble is not even started yet. So I'm buying at literally the bottom of the real estate market. And of course, by 2004, 2005, thinking I'm really smart because everything I ever touched so far has made money. And this is, I am learning a lot. I'm learning about being a landlord. I'm, I'm dealing with different things. I've had a few evictions. So I am learning, but unfortunately, I'm learning in a market that has gone vertical. It's like being a crypto trader in 2017, right? Like everybody's like quitting their jobs because they're a full-time crypto trader when it went to 2,000, 20,000 Bitcoin. So I'm in that same situation and I'm young. So there's, a, there's a, definitely a setup here for a fall. And um, in 2007, I was knocking on doors for foreclosures and 2006. And I noticed that it's getting thicker and thicker. I go to the title company every week. They hand me a stack of uh, all the notice of defaults. And it's gone from being, you know, something I can fold up to put in my pocket to like walking around with a small phone book. <laughs> and so I know there's something bad is going to happen. And I'm looking at all the loans and I see AmeriQuest and Countrywide and Lehman Brothers. And I'm like, wow, this is really bad. So I actually start telling everybody I know in 2007 to sell their real estate and sell their stocks. Because uh, at this time, I'd become a real student of economics. Uh, that was kind of where I kind of jumped from books, from section of the bookstore to the economics section and was also on the ground in California. And I was like, this is going to all blow up. So I did what any, any rational 22-year-old uh, or 3-year-old or whatever old I was 
And I went and bought as many houses as I could because I was like, I need to make as much money as I can in the next six months before this all blows up. And that's exactly what I did. I, I, I cashed out of all these beautiful gains I had and rolled it all into bigger properties. I upgraded. I went from the, the $150,000 to $200,000 real estate market to buying a $500,000 homes or a few of them and trying to sell them for a million. That was, uh, I, I listed the most expensive property I'd ever done, the most money I'd ever put in a property, listed it in uh, February of 2007 and then Bear Stearns went under and that was where it all came undone, where I was literally chasing properties down, having so many foreclosures to this day, I've never even made it an attempt to fix my credit. Since 2008, I have only purchased seller finance deals because I just had to make a new way. I never made an attempt to fix my credit. And to this day, I bet you the credit score is probably a 500. So, you know, I just completely imploded in 2008 because I thought I had confused a bubble for brains. And that is one of the most important lessons and the most impactful moments in my life because luckily I was able to rebuild, but it took me a few years just to dust myself off from that one. Yeah, I can imagine. And kind of even throughout, throughout those years, I mean, walk us through that time. Like, what were you doing? What, what was your mindset? That, had you given up or did you, were you working on other, other things? Like, kind of walk us through your, your, your mentality at that time and even, even your wife and your, and your family and what everybody else was thinking and going through. So since I was young, I always felt this destiny that I could be wealthy and that I would be wealthy. Actually, I just, I just kind of felt that I knew that it was going to happen. It was all going to play out. And for the first time in 2008, that was when I felt like it was not going to happen. And I really went into a depression and um, was just not sure what to do. My only thing on my resume was real estate. I was in a really bad shape. My wife was a school teacher. I was now at this point making no money. Uh, so I went to like, and you know, everybody's got to also go back in time and think of 2008. The, the economy is like shedding like 700,000 jobs a month. And, you know, going into early 2008, like everything is like, we're going into the greater depression. And so my mindset is not only that I, I screwed up, but that I screwed up and I'm, I'm in a really bad situation. Luckily, I had an extremely supportive wife. She never gave up on me. She was always encouraging, never gave me any grief for not for you know sitting at home not making money and um, you know I would still try to go out but there was nothing I could do it was destroyed and so I actually after about six months of just kind of doing nothing I went to a truck driving school and got my class A license never got a job as a truck driver but that's where my mindset was I went from entrepreneur and success to what do I do that won't that can work through a, a depression or a severe recession so I ended up actually um, getting a job at a grocery store starting salary was eight bucks an hour in 2008. And that's where I was. I went from having over a million dollars of, of assets to, you know, writing $165,000 checks to fix up properties to saying yes to an $8 an hour job because I was like, we're going into depression. What? I was like, at least I can work my way up in the grocery chain. And, and that's where I'll do. I'll have a safe job. Right. And um, I actually did that for two years uh, but also in 2008, I started a hobby. Uh, my wife convinced me to start a hobby about talking about the economy and personal finance on YouTube. And that's really how I ended up ultimately going the direction I went with business because Google took over YouTube 
And they reached out to me, made me one of their first YouTube partners. So they start paying me and all of a sudden I'm making 2,500 a month from them. And then another organization says, Hey, can we put an advertisement before your videos? We'll pay you a thousand a week. And I was like, okay, wow. Now I'm making 4,000 a month from this other group. So all of a sudden now you're making money from this hobby. And all I'm doing is talking about money every Friday. So I'm like, this is insane. And my wife's encouraging me to start a, a newsletter about personal finance and I pushed it off for about six months. But now we've had our first kid in 2009. So now she's really pushing me like, hey, come on, I want to quit my job. Uh, can you start a newsletter? And, and uh, I finally did in uh, March of 2010, got together with my cousin. And uh, we started futuremoneytrends.com officially. The revenue comes from advertisers. But that's how this, this whole thing started from a hobby and the encouragement of my wife, both because she believed in me and she also wanted to quit her job. So, <laughs> but it was a good lesson. Even working for the grocery store, it was a really good lesson. It was a really good time in my life because my wife and I went through a very, a, a severe frugality stage where we went, to, we would, you know, paid off our home. But prior to even buying a home, we actually we squatted in our friend's foreclosure because he was going through foreclosures. I was like, can I just live in the house for nine months and <laughs> that? I mean. We did a lot of crazy things uh, to save money. We got rid of our dogs because they had medical bills. We got rid of TV for years. We sold her wedding ring to pay off our cars. I mean, it was a good time to, to really be focused with the wife on, on saving money, on trying not to become wealthy, but just trying not, trying not to be poor ever. And it was a good time in our life. And it set us up for you know a healthy balance sheet going into a time where we would start making great money again. That's awesome. That's beautiful, Daniel. And I think about the fact that you were able to start, you know, Future Money Trends, your company uh, to this day from the from this downfall, from this quote unquote failure, from this feedback that you got. And it's, you know, in our darkest times that, you know, our best work comes to light. So maybe talk about really quick what so if you were to sum up your, you know, for as far as your company, Future Money Trends and what you're out there providing for, you know, the, the, the watchers, the viewers, the listeners, what is that thing? What is that? What are you, what message are you trying to get across? Are you trying to help people with their personal finances? Are you trying to pick, are you picking stocks, which I know you're not, you know, but what's your message? Yeah. So my message is, you know, initially when we started it, I wanted to create something that was a hybrid of like what Dave Ramsey teaches and Kiyosaki. So Dave Ramsey is very focused on, you know, pay off your debt, you know, be very prudent and make a lot of sacrifices early on. Kiyosaki is more like, hey, let's embrace debt, which I get, you know, but I just kind of wanted to make a hybrid. So I called it futuremoneytrends.com and it was personal finance for the new economy uh, because let's face it, the economy is changing um, in the sense that it is going more freelance due to a lot of reasons between technology and, and, and the burdens of government, just things are changing. And I, so I wanted to have a letter like, hey, look, we cannot be planning for the 1980s portfolio when clearly things have radically changed and there's a lot of other opportunities and really wanted to help people get out of that retirement mindset and get into the financial independence mindset. Um, so that's how it started. But now fast forward to today, it's still focused on that, but now it actually has a case study, right? I'm like, look, I did it. I did it in five years, you guys. And I did it through, you know, two or three years of that was us not making any real money. And it just through sacrifice and grit and, and making decisions like moving, like moving far to save money, whatever, whatever we had to do. But, you know, so I like to tell people that, look, I was nobody special and I was able to do it in about five years. So what I tell people is I think five years to 10 years is a realistic goal because you can 
Uh, if you cut your expense, expenses enough, um, and it doesn't have to be forever. Look, I, I travel five star everywhere I go now, but there was a time where we didn't do that. And we um, made huge sacrifices, but it was just a short term thing. But instead of uh, living the scripted life, which doesn't have you re- relaxing and living in luxury until you're in your 60s, I think you can go, you can write your own script. And that's really what Future Money Trends is about today is about sharing with people what I've done in the past and what I'm actually doing right now. Because of course, being just like you said earlier, there's a whole nother life out there for people. When, when you make some money or become financially independent, there are things that I have learned that the rich do that I'm able to quickly share on with, share with my subscribers. I love that. And I think about the fact that Robert Kiyosaki and Dave Ramsey's messages are polar opposite. And you'll often hear some of their underlings and some people in the industry talk about the fact that they're polar opposite. And you, you hear, you know, one tells you never go in debt, not even for your mortgage. And one is like, hey, the good debt is the best thing on this planet and you need as much of that as possible, you know? And you have like these polar opposite messages and you've come along, Daniel. And, you know, I know that people who listen to podcasts and who go to YouTube and things like that, it's either like you're on this one side or you're on the other side. And, you know, I've, as of late, started listening a little bit to some Dave and see what he's about because I've always just prejudged that side of things. So when I think about the fact that those are polar opposites and your message is to find a way to bridge the gap to show that there is a world in which both of these can exist and you can actually benefit from the benefits of both sides of thinking and not actually have to deal with the negative consequences that each side may bring. So I want to talk about the fact that you want to help people go from a retirement mindset to a financial independence mindset. Let's first highlight what is a retirement mindset and what, what's so bad about that? Okay, so the retirement mindset is that you take your money and you allocate it out to Wall Street where they charge fees, where you're typically speculating in a 401k fund or you're focused on the tax deduction of an IRA or a 401k. But no one's considering the downside. First of all, you've given it to Wall Street. And from what I've learned is that Wall Street is a, is a transfer of wealth. Yes, you can make money over 30 or 40 years, but the people who are making the real money on Wall Street are the people who work on Wall Street. And that's whether it's fees or they're creating these products. That is where the real money is at. As far as taking these tax deductions, look, if you make a ton of money, go for it. But really, you're speculating because if you look at a hundred year chart of the income tax, you're basically paying the lowest income tax since 1931. There's a small blip in the eighties, but essentially you have to go back to the thirties. So you're avoiding paying the lowest taxes in a hundred years, betting that taxes will be even lower in 20 years or 30 years or 15 years, whenever you're going to retire. But think about the national debt alone or the entitlements. There's no way taxes are going way up. And, you know, so if you take that deduction today because you're trying to avoid paying 25%, well, guess what? In uh, 20 years from now, you might be paying 60 or 70%. And those tax rates have been that high before and they're high, that high in other countries. So I don't like the retirement idea because you, you keep, you're not only deferring your savings, you're deferring the lifestyle that those savings could provide you. So that's the mindset I do want to get people out of. And um, it also comes with a dependency uh, mindset that somehow your employer is responsible for your, your retirement. And that's just bullcrap to me. 
Yeah, for sure. And even the 401k plan, I don't, even the initial purpose of the plan was not to solely provide, you know, your retirement funds. I think it was to assist in your retirement and, you know, people that's, I mean, that's yeah. people's one and only lifeline. So let's, let's move on to financial independence. What is that in your eyes and, and kind of describe, you know, what, what the difference is between that and the retirement mindset? So financial independence, by definition for me, for the money part, is you have to have enough passive income to pay for your lifestyle. And I would say that you could declare financial independence. That means your, your rental property cash flow, your dividends, your crowdfunded investment, the notes, whatever income, business income, if it pays for your electricity, your groceries, whatever your living costs are for housing, basic, you're financially independent. Now, if you have active income, of course, then you can continue to build on that because ultimately, you know, I could say I was financially independent when my $30,000 a year lifestyle was covered by $30,000 in bills. But look, today, I mean, look, I'll be honest with you, we probably spend 50 grand on wine every year now. So the passive income is much higher, but I don't completely depend on it. But it's nice knowing the financial freedom in that is knowing that, okay, I do have enough passive income to pay for my entire lifestyle without ever touching the principal. But ultimately, financial independence, um, once the numbers part is done, it's all about controlling your time and having the freedom to wake up without an alarm clock, to not be forced to do anything. Now, there's nothing wrong with having active income. Obviously, today, I, I work at Future Money Trends, a company that I own and run. But it's liberating that I wake up and I don't, I don't have to do Future Money Trends. I want to do Future Money Trends. And that's a good place to be in. So all, the ultimate financial independence is being able to have control of your time. But I think in order to do that, you have to have the multiple streams of income uh, paying for your lifestyle. Because you know, one thing that Ramsey does get and Kiyosaki does not advocate for is when you pay off something like your home, that gives you something that's the feeling of wealth. Now, that cannot be measured on a financial statement because that is just the feeling it gives you. Waking up, having a cup of coffee, knowing that there's no mortgage. I only have to come up with $1,000 for utilities and $1,000 for food. And you're like, wow, my lifestyle can be turned off like a hose, right? Like, think about it. I mean, if we went into a deep depression, I mean, without having a mortgage, you, you, could, you could turn your lifestyle down like a, like a faucet. And I think that is one of the things I think that financial independence can give you the feeling of wealth, which is beautiful. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you mentioned that. And I think it's something that probably they both lack at. And even I, I even think about Tony Robbins. I recently read his book on uh, Money Master the Game. And I think that when it comes to our financial decisions, and he may have said it best, when it comes to our financial decisions and what our vision is and what is success and how we view wealth and how we view risk, all of that I mean, yes, you can look at statistics, you can look at numbers, you can look at, well, this makes more sense on paper. But I mean, what it actually boils down to is you and your emotional state and what you're comfortable with and, you know, what's okay for you. It's like, no, like, I mean, you can't give the same blueprint to every single person out there and expect them, even if it's a great financial plan and expect them to be okay with it. Some people just don't take the risk as, as well. Some people don't understand how risky something is. I mean, there's just so many variables out there. So when, I mean, you hit it right on the head when it comes to your financial intelligence, I don't think that it's a bad thing. And, you know, like you said, Robert, Robert is of the mindset, like, why would you do something like that? Like, that's crazy. Like financially speaking, that's just absurd. Why would you pay off your house? Whereas at the end of the day, it's about your happiness, your fulfillment and how you feel about what you're doing. Right. Absolutely. Look, I mean, there, there's, 
so many things that you can do in your life just to be more at peace. And for me, paying off the mortgage is, is one of them. And, you know, I, I have friends who we even get into debates. They're like, you're an idiot. Why'd you do that? Why'd you pay off your house? You could, you know, earn, you know, 10% on a rental property or Pure Street or the stock market. And um, you only have a three and a half percent mortgage. And I'm like, you know, it just doesn't matter, man. I don't care what it, the pay, what it looks like on paper. I'm just telling you when I wake up every morning and there's, I've been mortgage free since 2011. I love it because it, the, the stress, like, I'll, uh, you know, if there's something going on in the business or, you know, maybe um, there's an, an urgent matter to take care of, or we need to help somebody it's so liberating because, you know, there, there's, it's really hard for me to screw up my life at this point with having that paid off mortgage. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about your progression really quick through your through the retirement mindset because I didn't know I don't even think you started with the retirement mindset. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you started down the quote unquote Robert Kiyosaki build your wealth path, and then when financial difficulty hit, you were like, okay, well, I need to go study a new a new school of thought to help me out of this situation while still holding on to some of the beliefs and some of the, the things that I had from my old school of thought and moving forward, getting yourself out of that mess and moving forward, finding a way to kind of combine it both, both and build your wealth. But I want you to explain it because I'm sure you, you can explain it way better. How did you get yourself out of your situation? What did you start to do? What did you start to invest in? And what were the schools of thoughts that you were kind of implementing at the time to get yourself out of your situation? So the, the, pl- the, plan was, you're right though, I was Kiyosaki only and going to 2008, but after you get murdered by debt, right? Like your head's chopped off from a debt crash and it was just a disaster. All of a sudden I was like, okay, wait a minute. I, I, I get the good debt, bad debt, but I was like, I cannot be in debt to my eyeballs because this just blew me up. So that was that mindset of all of a sudden going from wanting to get rich to just not wanting to make sure I'm never poor. And so my wife and I, the first thing we did was we really got into aggressive cutting of spending, which I briefly spoke of here. But one of the hardest things was to do was to leave our area. So we were from LA County and we moved an hour away into San Bernardino County. And the reason why we did that was to save money. So we were able to cut our living expenses by half just by moving about an hour away. Now, of course, there's societal pressures and a lot of peer pressure Uh, from friends and family who didn't sign up, right? They bought the $500,000 house with a mortgage and stayed in the neighborhood. They bought the the BMW with with an eight-year car loan. And, you know, here I am driving a 2003 Altima and, you know, just living in um, in an area that probably had a median income of of 30 grand a year and uh, just totally, you know, looked like a poor person, I guess, in front of my friends. But really what we were doing was we were sitting there saving money, but it was saving money so that we could buy a rental property. Because my original plan was to simply just buy enough rental property to be able to pay my mortgage, to pay my own mortgage, to pay my own rent if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to just rent. And so that was how I was kind of focused on just buying rental properties with 200 or 300 in positive cash flow and bringing that money in and not compounding it or using it to pay off the rental property debt but using it to fund my lifestyle. So that was a good mindset to be in actually because that retirement mindset uh, tells you to never touch the money. And it actually was very healthy for me to take the money because it became more real, right? So when it's paying a bill, when it pays the utility bill, now all of a sudden the money is becoming very real to me and these are becoming little businesses, these rental properties. And that's really where we focused was uh, just buying rental properties and we didn't even really, even though I was very familiar with the stock market, I traded a lot of stocks, we didn't really get into speculating in stocks until about 2011, which became a fun hobby. 
uh, but not something I relied on for income. More, we, were, we always focused 90% of our efforts on just how do we find properties to, to bring in cash flow. And we'd stumble across things we'd learn, like, you know, we'd found out foundation problems were easy to fix, like $5,000, but nobody else could buy them. And, you know, because of the Carlton Sheets programs that I had studied, I was, my mind was very open to being unconventional. So that's, you know, a lot of times you'll run into a real, most realtors have no idea what a creative financing is. So, but luckily I had, I had ran into some that were familiar with it and off I went. And so to this day, I mean, I buy four or five properties a year and they're all, they're all structured more free market based with, with the actual sellers. Usually I find a distressed seller, distressed, distressed property or both ideally and um, create some sort of structure to uh, be able to either purchase it as a rental or purchase it as a flip. But all of this happened because the credit score went away in 2008. And so it's, it's kind of funny, you know, I lost something that was very valuable having a 700 FICO, but it opened up and unleashed all this creativity that, uh, you know, my subconscious mind had remembered all these things I'd learned at 18 when I was, you know, paying $3,000 to, to have, to be enrolled in a Carlton Sheets program for six months. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. And I, I want the listeners to really to really harp on that because, I mean, people all the time have these limiting beliefs over what is possible for them, what they are allowed to do, what they can and can't do, what society has told them is is the norm. And you just said it. I mean, people's biggest handcuff, uh, especially in America, is credit. Like credit is king. Like credit, credit, credit. Like that's that's. I mean, your life is going to be ran by credit. And not saying that you shouldn't look after your credit and keep it, you know, in the best place possible. But what I'm saying is that if you are in a position to where you were in 2008 and you, that's not an option for you, there's no, that doesn't automatically mean you should lie down and give up because there's so much out there for you. There's so many other options and you've been able to kill it, quite frankly, without, I mean, you're not even using your credit. You're not even using the, the quote unquote, the greatest gift that we've been given here. Right. <laughs> and, wow. and you're killing it. <laughs> so that debunks that belief right there. And I want, I want the listeners to be able to apply that in so many other areas. I mean, even money, like let's say somebody has great credit, but they don't have any money with creative financing. Daniel, do you need money to get started in real estate? No. And um, look, I'm talking to a group right now who uh, has a brilliant idea in Austin to build some commercial properties but they don't have the money. They have the idea, but of course, the money—the money will. The, you can always find money. That's the one thing about rich people. Rich people always want to make more money. So, if you have a great real estate deal, I mean, email some people who are already in the business, and I guarantee you'll find the money. You really don't need. I've I've done so many no money down deals or no money structure or or you you, you just have to be creative and open minded. There is no. Once you realize the script is not really there, it's kind of like in Matrix, right? If you've ever seen the movie, The Matrix, the kid's like, don't try to bend the spoon. Just realize there is no spoon. And I would say this for everybody listening. If you think about society or anything or um, just it's there's yes, there's a script for life that we are all aware of, but it's not it's not like that's it. It's not inherently in our DNA Mm -hmm. that we need to go get jobs and retire or go get a loan uh, to buy a house there it's wide open. So just put it out there. I mean, look, I've done deals where the realtors get paid in six months because I need to borrow their commission to buy the property in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, things you can do. You just have, but the thing is you have to ask. One thing I have learned is if you don't ask, you don't get. 
I love that. I love that. Now, before we round out, I want to finish out the segment really quick of, of our steps. So when you are looking to financial independence and what you've done, again, you, you, you being our best example right now, when you're looking at financial independence, coming from like no credit, no nothing. I mean, the first thing you want to do is an aggressive cutting of spending. And that's what you guys are. You did an aggressive cutting of spending, especially your living expenses. And you started buying more rentals. It wasn't until a bit later until you started getting speculative on stocks. What else is in your wheelhouse when it comes to investing, when it comes to your portfolio and what you're looking at for growth? I love crowdfunding. The, the, I like Fundrise, which is a private real estate read, and I like Pure Street, which allows you to buy notes. So I'm totally ignorant of buying notes, but I know it's a great idea to have first trust deeds on people's homes. And Pure Street does that. And the guys who, who created it used to work for Google. Michael Berry, the guy who Christian Bale played in uh, Big Short, that's the seed investor for that company. So I mean, just a legit group of people disrupting the mortgage market, but allowing people like me to participate and everybody listening. I mean, you could put a thousand dollars towards a, you know, $20 million commercial property or a $250,000 single family home. Um, and you'll just have a share of that and you're making, you know, anywhere from seven to, to 8%. So I love the crowdfunding. And also these days when I do buy stocks, I'm big into wealth preservation. So like, if you know, I don't have any I don't have like the exciting blue chip for you, but I do have the idea of like, look, the mindset of the rich is just not to lose the money. Uh, Warren Buffett says that's number one, number two. Well, so let's say, let's use Disney for example. If I went out and bought Disney stock today and it went down, a middle-class mind might say you lost money, but the rich mind says I own Disney. I didn't lose a penny. Uh, Volatility does not equal risk and volatility in price does not mean you lost or gained anything. Uh, consider the asset. And, you know, my mindset when buying something like Disney is that I'm just looking for somewhere to hoard my money and I don't want it in cash. So outside of buying something that's never gone to zero like gold, I might buy something that's never <laughs> going to go to zero like Disney. Um, or of course, you know, I'm a, I just love buying single family homes. I bought in all kinds of houses, but I think for me, I'm now buying single family homes, not only for cash flow, but just because I'm just looking for somewhere to preserve the wealth. Where can I preserve it where it won't go away? And, and you know, when you think big like that, you're thinking like a rich person because rich people, recessions and bear markets don't matter because they, they have this hundred year time frame because the wealth is not just something they're going to make for themselves. The wealth is like a piano to be passed on from generation to generation. And of course, I'm first generation wealth talking to you, but I've spoken to and interviewed many second and third generation just in the past few weeks here because I'm actually trying to write a book on family wealth. And that is, uh, it's just a different mindset, but that is the mindset we need because if you want to be wealthy, you have to mimic the wealthy and that's advice straight from Tony Robbins. Man, Daniel, how can I pick up that book? How can I pre-order that book? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's, there's, it's still in the phase, but I actually, I have a, I have a book actually coming out in February. I'll make sure I send you a copy and it's, it's, you're going to love the title. It's called don't save for retirement. Uh, I love <laughs> sure it already. It's off a lot of people. So. <laughs> I love it already. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. Question number one, what is your favorite before the millions book? Rich dad, poor dad, by Robert Kiyosaki. Boom. And you guys know that book very, very well. So we're not going to go into it. Number two, what is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. You know, unfortunately, I, I, I don't use any apps. I'm a, kind of a non-tech savvy <laughs> online millennial. 
You can't be a non-tech savvy online millennial living in Austin. <laughs> I guess the only app that I actually use is Chase. I love it. I'm See, there you check go. My bank account. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. We'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. All right. Next question. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? Apps. It's it's a hundred percent my children. I wake up every day with my children. I have coffee and hang out with them. We read. We sit around and watch Shark Tank together. Uh, we play Cash Flow all the time. I spend a good amount of time with my children every day, and that is the most important thing to me. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? I know some of them already. <laughs> uh, swallowing my pride, living like a poor person, uh, declining going to parties, wine groups, limo rides with friends, you know, whatever, just living like a poor person and being very, you know, rejecting all the things my friends wanted to do just because I was so focused on becoming financially independent. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Without a doubt, my father, uh, because he taught me to go all in. And I think that's something that I, uh, I, I got from him. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? Belief. Les Brown talks about something that really struck a chord with me. He said, the easiest thing I've ever done is make a million dollars. The hardest thing I ever done did was believing I could do it. And it's, it, it is belief. I'll tell you, really consider that. And that is one of the best takeaways for the audience. It is the belief. I never thought in a million years I could just make a million dollars. And I tell you right now, if I needed to make a million dollars over the next 30 days, I, I'll do it. I love that. I love that so much. That's a beautiful quote. And I actually have a bonus question because you spend, I believe you said at least over 50K a year in wine. So give us some of your favorite recommendations. Well, I think some good recommendations. Certainly, I, I love a good Pinot Noir called Clark and Telephone. You'll notice that it has the wax over it. It's about 45 bucks at the grocery store. Uh, without a doubt, one of my go-to and uh, starters for the evening. Um, I also love the, uh, some good Cabernets out there by a winery called Justin. And I think you can't go wrong with buying any wine from Justin. Nice. I love it. Love it. Thanks for the extra tidbit. So if the listeners want to want to reach out to you and learn a little bit more about you, check out some of the stuff you have going on, where can they find some of your information? Well, if they'll go to futuremoneytrends.com, you can subscribe to my Weekly Wealth Digest for free. And you'll get both the, the stories and things that I did to become wealthy. And you'll also each week get the things that I'm doing right now. So if I'm writing a check into anything, I like to share it. I like just brutal, open honesty with everybody, uh, everything that I'm doing. So go to futuremoneytrends.com and uh, you can subscribe free. There we go. Well, Daniel, this has been an amazing podcast interview. I sincerely will have to have you back on. And I feel like there's so much that we haven't talked about that we could possibly talk about. So thank you for the, the value that you've provided to our audience. Thank you for the value that you provide to your audience and people out there on a daily basis. I, I would definitely resonate with people who are on this mission and who are helping people discover a new side of them. So definitely thank you for the work that you put in. And uh, we'll talk to you very, very soon. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a good fit to work with the Before the Millions team, here's what I want you to do next. Head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. That's beforethemillions.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and we'll get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what is your cash flow goal? How much are you looking to make every month? Number two, your personalized investing strategy. And number three, the best way to get started using cash flowing rental real estate.
Remember, starting and scaling your real estate investments and business doesn't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We've helped clients all over the world start and scale their investing efforts to six figures and beyond while enjoying life and making the world a better place. To find out if we can help you do the same, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. I'm Darrell Lallier, and let's talk soon.